In today's episode, I'm joined by guest Lauren Shia. Lauren is a student at Oxford University who Adik and I had the pleasure of meeting when we were in Oxford a few weeks ago for the Emerge Conference for Social Entrepreneurs. And Lauren is a double MBA and master's student at Oxford focusing on nature, society, and environmental governance. And I invited her to be a guest on the podcast because we had a really fascinating conversation after uh, we presented at the Emerge Conference about how a change in thought is really what's required for us to address the environmental issues of our time, which in my personal opinion are perhaps the most urgent problems of our time. So I thought it would be great to have a brilliant mind like Lauren's weighing in on the issue because she was particularly struck by our discussion and how we look at the mind as the solution to these problems. So enjoy the podcast. Okay, so welcome, Lauren. Um, I would love to just start with having you talk a little bit about who you are and what you're up to in life and how you and I met. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, Mara. Um, so my name is Lauren Chia, and right now I'm a student at Oxford University in the One Plus One MBA program. So um, this is a program where you do one year of a master's degree and then the second year um, an MBA, the idea being uh, that you go in depth into a particular subject the first year, and then you can apply that knowledge um, sort of in a more practical way and the MBA, which offers a bit more breadth. Um, so my master's degree this year is in nature, society, and environmental governance, which um, I am super excited about and, and enjoying very much. Um, and yeah, Mara, you and I met at um, the Emerge Conference was it last weekend or the weekend before? I don't even remember. <laughs> the weekend before, thank you. Um, yeah, and that was here at Said Business School, um, and it was a conference focused on social impact. Um, and Mara delivered a wonderful session on One Solution um, and sort of, yeah, the thinking behind... Um, you know, focusing on the mind and realizing that, you know, your mind is um, sort of a vehicle for changing how you perceive the world and that things don't have to happen to you, um, but you can sort of take control of it within your mind. I thought that was a very um, yeah, powerful session. So we chatted a bit after the, the session um, and, yeah, had a pretty good time. And then afterwards, uh, you asked me to... Uh, he asked me if I wanted to um, come in, do a podcast with you, and happy to do so. Cool. Well, we're really excited to have you. And um, the reason is because we're always looking at how a new understanding of the mind would really lead to change in um, problem areas in society. And one of the ones that you and I um, struck up a conversation about, which was why I wanted to do this interview, is really how... Um, the environmental destruction that's so pervasive right now um, is really something that is often talked about as um, problems in, um, you know, our systems, our businesses, our um, 
approach to technology um, and, and even things like individual and corporate consumption and use, but very infrequently as it talked about as something that starts in the mind. So I would just love to hear in your experience, in your studies, and what you're looking to do in the world, what you see about the connection between the mind and the state of the environment. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think there are a lot of complex drivers, um, of course, underlying the environmental issues that we're facing today. But I think that what's behind a lot of these um, complex drivers is often people who behave according to um, sort of societal norms, um, uh, laws, um, you know, sort of uh, institutional ways of behavior within organizations, etc. that um, I think cause them to fall into um, behavioral patterns that contribute to environmental destruction without actively um, making a choice to be environmentally destructive. So um, I think oftentimes, for example, people who enter into the natural resource extraction industries, they do so obviously not because they're trying to um, uh, destroy the environment, but because uh, oftentimes um, they get drawn in because of the rhetoric around um, you know, needing to get a job to secure a livelihood and, um, you know, maybe it's what their other friends are doing. And so I think, um, a lot of this sort of stuff happens because of the people we're around and the society we live in. And it's a result of us not knowing that we can sort of take a step back and realize that these thoughts that are in our mind can sort of be transformed as a starting point for affecting change. So, um, one of the examples that I really loved from, from you, Mara, was uh, about uh, women who were, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, a woman who were um, victims of domestic violence mm-hmm. um, and in the Middle East, I believe. And they, once they realized that this was not normal, this was not something that they had to take, it became they became empowered to kind of walk away from um, the cycle of abuse. And I think you can apply the same sort of concepts with environmental challenges. Once you realize that, you know, you have a choice and there are other options um, to the current mode of, of living. Um, it's that becomes the first step for you then to start thinking about um ways to challenge the status quo and to bring about change in a larger way. Um, is, I'm, th- this is in no way to say that, um, for example, someone who um, needs a job should not, you know, um, for example, work in, in coal mining to support um, his or her family uh, when there really are no there really don't seem to be other options in that particular case, but um, it does go to show that, um, for example, if uh, people working in the coal mining industry are exposed to this concept of one solution, that um, they can perhaps think about other ways um, of influencing um, their companies or like influencing their peers or influencing um, sort of government officials to uh, think about 
new ways in which, for example, new industries could be brought in or, um, yeah, thing, uh, sort of, uh, make an, make an influence, um, kind of on a broader, uh, long-term scale. That makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, you bring up so many good points where I think not only is it, um, helping any human being realize that they can be a, a driver of larger change if they see that. So your point that someone, you know, living in a small town where perhaps a job in the coal mines is one of the only options to them, even to consider that they have a voice, that if they think differently about what they want to be an option in their community, they can go out and, and get involved in, in trying to bring that to their community, that there's no one who upon realizing their freedom of thought can't get involved in the change game, you know, that that's really available to anyone. And then I love the point that you brought up, you know, earlier that so much of what is keeping um, industries alive that are really destructive to the environment is just a certain status quo that people don't realize they're buying into. It's almost invisible that these are, um, industries people continue to go into almost because they don't see any other option or that is just what already exists. It's so tempting to think that what already exists in the world in certain industries is the way it has to be. And we kind of almost forget that we just thought those up. Like that's what we have thought up so far, but we can think up something different. And I think you know, you're really questioning all sorts of thoughts that underlie that from, well, I just have to get a good job or, well, that's the only jobs available or, well, that's the only jobs where you can make money. And it's so amazing how when you have that, that thinking that looks true and it looks like it's an externally imposed reality and there's no wiggle room in there. But when people learn about thought, they begin to question everything. And you're right. It applies to any problem or any culture um, or any area of humanity is that when people realize, oh, I don't see how my own thinking is involved in creating this reality. And if I realize that I have the potential for a new thought and then I'm a part of creating a new reality. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a very empowering message. Um, yeah, especially in contexts where you're working with people who are relatively disempowered or feel like they're a bit out of control um it's a way for them to sort of regain control over their lives and like the direction of their futures or the futures of the communities around them or the environment the larger environment um depending on you know what their uh goals are right right and it's so cool to see that that's on every level that it's everyone's thinking it's not just kind of policymakers or executives of corporations it's everybody and everyone kind of waking up to that empowerment of the mind is what will drive change yeah yeah definitely yeah and I think it's um it's a very interesting concept and and it can be applied in in so many ways and I think one of the challenges that I suppose um uh, your project faces is how do you bring this message to so many people and get them engaged and actually believing in in this concept in a way that can you know generate mass change which I'm sure is part of your mission (laughs) (laughs) part of our mission it's something that we're learning about all the time and really just experimenting with different ideas and seeing what sticks um yeah I'm curious just since since we met two weeks ago, have you had any ideas about that? Because we're open to hearing and we feel like particularly people like yourselves that are 
really inspired and at the early stages of your career, you're embarking on a career in something to do with social impact and you're very interested in the environment. So what, if any ideas do you have about that? Yeah, well, I guess specifically with respect to the environment, um, I mean, my ideas are constantly evolving, especially throughout this course. Um, we're just learning so much new, exciting material um, on a pretty much daily basis. But um, sort of right now, my general thoughts are um, that one of the main issues with people's thinking about the environment is that in today's world is um, – that oftentimes people think about the environment as external or something else mm-hmm. other than ourselves. And I think historically when we've talked about, you know, social change or we've talked about, um, you know, uh, yeah, human rights, human welfare, all of these things have been focused on the human in separation from uh, the environment. And by kind of creating this thought in our head, of these being separate things, it allows us and yeah, enables us to, for example, exploit the environment or, for example, to um, treat the environment um, as a sort of political other um, that's that's not perhaps as valuable as um, humans. And I think a lot of what my course, um, uh, you know, tries to... Um, demonstrate is that actually we can break down the this binary between humans and like nature that doesn't it's just a construct um that we've invented essentially um and that's carried on throughout time and if we can start breaking down this binary a bit and realize that actually the lines are not so clear between what is human and what is part of the environment so for example you can think of um like we were just talking about um, bacteria and microbes in our bodies that fluidly transfer from the environment to ourselves. And, um, for example, in uh, a lot of urban cities today, there's a lot of transfer of chemicals um, or uh, toxins from uh, city environments into our bodies, which then affect how we think. And so <laughs> um, it's not just an environment that's external to our body, but we're all sort of interrelated. I think it can really be a first step for um, catalyzing all sorts of new thoughts about how we should be relating with our environment, with our environment. And, you know, I think part of the problem around these, a lot of these environmental issues is that um, sort of in the like global capitalist system that we have today, um, the environment has been viewed as an external thing. Um, And so as not as something that's um, not really uh, integrated into as a matter of concern into how like our global system works. I think that um, uh, it causes some of these issues. Now I'm not arguing right now per se that we should be like integrating environmental um, components into like our um, into global capitalism because I think there's a whole set of debates around that which I don't necessarily know where I stand <laughs> stand on that yet because yeah there's um, for example a subset of thought that says that we should um, try to value all aspects of nature and incorporate those values um, in economics um, so 
like this is the sort of discourse around carbon credits, wetland credits, etc. Um, and yeah, there's sort of one side that says this is good for the environment because this is a solution for the environment. Um, while another side would say, well, this is actually just extending like sort of the um, capitalist roots <laughs> of the system <laughs> into thing into kind of conquering more and more um, environmental territory that was previously not conquered. So mm-hmm. I won't get into that, but the main sort of point is <laughs> that I do think um, thinking of the environment as inherently distinct and separate separate from humans has probably contributed a lot um, to the sort of environmental destruction that we're seeing today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's so clear listening to you just now explain it like, yeah, things like carbon credits is just a Band-Aid in the sense that it's going to kind of try to uh, push back the symptoms a bit and say, okay, let's give people financial incentive to give a shit. But really what you're saying is so much more powerful because it's really going to the source of what's driving it all, which is this thought in people's minds that they're separate from the environment. And I think on a long term, like if we're really looking, you know, when you look at the earth, we're talking millions, billions of years, is it even trillions? I don't know. But in terms of the long, long term solution of what's going to lead to humans being able to exist sustainably on this planet, I think what you're pointing to is a much more realistic solution. Because if you think about what you just said, like, if every child was learning about how we drink and eat the environment like it's in our bodies every day (laughs) if that was just how we were educated like everything you breathe every drop of water you drink every bite of food you eat is the environment inside your body and I never even thought of it till you said it but of course the bacteria that just transfers fluidly between those things so we are 100% the environment and the environment is us And I think, unfortunately, we're getting so sick that we're starting to be forced to see that. Like, if you look at plastics in the ocean, for example, that was not something many people knew about. Um, And many still don't um, until recently. But now they're starting to show and demonstrate how we end up having to eat that plastic. You know, the, the toxins and the plastic that we put in the ocean ends up back in our bodies. And so... Sadly, I think maybe how humans are eventually going to get so adversely affected by the destruction we've caused is maybe going to create that wake-up call to see that we aren't distinct and separate. But wouldn't it be amazing if we could learn that before we were all uh, crazy sick? And, just, and and maybe we already are. I mean, who knows? I know in America there's a whole debate, and I certainly have very strong opinions about, you know, our farming practices and um, and our consumption of, of chemicals and toxins and plastics and everything else. But even to just leave that debate out of it, I think what you're pointing to is so powerful and it really does suggest here is a deeper, more fundamental, really quite more simple long-term solution. It's just the shift in thinking that we are the environment. We have to live considering ourselves as part of the environment, A, because we are, and B, because if we don't, it causes a lot of problems. And that, in a way, is is almost much easier than having to bait and switch 
you know, corporations into um, caring financially. It's just if we if we create a generation of humans that understands this in their minds, then they're going to behave so differently in terms of the jobs they choose, the businesses they start, and how they run those, and how they see that intertwined with the fact that we are indeed a part of the environment. Yeah, definitely. And I think you see that already sort of happening with um, sort of people that I I know and um, younger generations that um, a lot of talented students um, and talented young people are interested in going into fields that um, have a social um, and or environmental impact in ways that, um, for example, my parents' generation um, wouldn't have considered because it was not um, as much of a concern back then. But yeah, I think sort of the general generational shift um, brings a lot of uh, potential new opportunities for um, making new ground on environmental issues. But I think also sort of the risk with that um, is that I see there are also a lot of my peers who even though they are social impact oriented, um, are not so, they don't consider the environment as something that's integrally related to social impact. And I think this just goes to show how deep this like binary <laughs> between humans and the environment has like just gone into our thinking. And it's, you know, it's, for example, I think about how I was educated growing up in a public school in California. Um, I mean, I remember we would have maybe some classes on like geology or, you know, something like that, but it always seemed like something extra. It was never something like a core part of my studies. And I never really learned about the environment until after I was in, in college and I was um, doing a degree in environmental science and public policy. And just this whole framing of like, the big social issues are, you know, their health or they are um, poverty or they are, you know, these sorts of, I think, buzzwords are sort of what you grow up hearing as like the things that need to be changed. <laughs> and a lot of people who are very, you know, um, like so driven by social justice, they go into these fields while never having really, I think, been sufficiently exposed to, um, you know, knowledge around just exactly how the environment actually really interacts very um, um, is entangled very deeply, uh, I think, with those issues of poverty and health and um, inequality, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. It is interesting how it, it, it certainly in my schooling, it's like an elective. If you're interested, you can go study about this thing called the environment, but otherwise we're going to stick to things like math and <laughs> English where you're going to have to read literature and don't get me wrong I loved English and I loved reading and writing but when you think about you know what is going to um, allow humanity to survive and thrive on the planet it's not more Jane Austen as much as like, <laughs> I enjoyed reading books I do think it's fascinating that something like environmental science at least in my day I'm, I'm sure I do feel like it's changing a bit but it's yeah considered a separate subject which very much proves your point earlier of it's like this other thing so um one more question i wanted to ask you is when we chatted in oxford um one of the things we spoke about is how innovation gets slowed down because people tend to operate 
very protective of the thinking around what they care about most. And so there's these silos that exist where kind of one field is not collaborating with another field because they have thinking that that field is not as good or in competition with them. And there's a, a lack of collaboration and ability to see a bigger picture. Um, so I would love to just hear you talk about your thoughts on innovation and what would allow humans to collaborate quicker and more effectively to make some of the changes we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I think just to start, a lot of the social and environmental challenges that we see today are increasingly complex and multidisciplinary. So they sort of um, require this <laughs> kind of interdisciplinary collaboration um, that uh, probably just doesn't happen enough um, in today's world. Uh, for example, among um, scientists and scientific organizations or even um, at my own university here. Um, so <laughs> I think um, part of the challenge is individuals being um, trained to think in a specific way and then to believe that they are experts in that field and then to sort of stop questioning um, things within their field. And I think that um, one of the benefits to sort of interdisciplinary research is um, you know, if you're going to be part of a productive research process in that sort of context, you sort of have to be a bit more open minded and willing to let your assumptions um, be challenged by by other disciplines. And I feel like this is a very timely conversation for us to um, get into again, because since we talked last, I've had a, a class on participatory research which is um, research that involves an interdisciplinary team of scientists um, working with a local community um, who also participates as sort of co-researchers in the process um, of doing the research so that their kind of sort of local knowledges are equally considered um, with the sort of scientific knowledge that the different scientists um, have to bear and and one of the key lessons um, coming out from our class um, of um, our lecturer who had done quite a bit of participatory research mostly related uh, to water management and like sort of flood risk reduction strategies in um, various communities she was saying that um, in order to succeed the scientists have had to be essentially like um outstanding in their field in the sense that it couldn't just be any scientist in that field, but someone who was willing to question, um, you know, their own dis discipline was willing to come open-minded and was willing to admit that they didn't know the answer. And I think um, I, I'm a bit wary, but I am going to stereotype here. <laughs> um, of course, I know many, many natural scientists who um, are very open-minded, but I do think the stereotype is that generally um, natural scientists or people who kind of operate in more um, kind of quantitative, less debatable disciplines usually, um, I think, or often have um, an idea that, uh, you know, they have this is the right answer and, and I think that's also what draws some of these people to these fields because they they like kind of thinking narrow etc and not necessarily being open to the sort of debate and contestation that characterizes um 
some of the social sciences, for example. I mean, I think that both the social sciences and the national na- natural sciences have a lot to bring to bear in solving uh, interdisciplinary problems. But I think there needs to be an openness on both sides to um, sort of recognize the value of of the other scientists. And I feel like um, it's more common in social science for social science researchers to acknowledge the value of natural scientists rather than the other way around. Um, <laughs> and I think part of part of that is um, because of just historically like uh, sort of the scientific principles of objectivity and neutrality, et cetera, have since the Enlightenment have been um, uh, really uh, reified in society. And the social sciences has always struggled as a discipline to kind of present itself to be as legitimate as the natural sciences. So I think in part it has something to do with that history. But I think um, like a lot of um, our complex challenges that we face can be better solved by, you know, having people, um, having scientists and having, you know, uh, people in powerful decision-making positions be a bit more open-minded in how they conceive of, um, you know, who, con- who and what, who constitutes someone who can bring valuable knowledge and what sort of knowledge is, um, uh, should be valued um, outside of kind of the traditional, like, status quo, um, you know, people and authorities that we turn to for as being more legitimate than, than others and providing um, certain sorts of, um, yeah, advice or facts, however you want to <laughs> want to characterize it. <laughs> well, and there's just, there's so much kind of uh, heated debate around what is facts, what is truth, what is news, especially today. And while you can totally see there's um, some ridiculous manipulating of certain statements to to make something sound a certain way, I'm thinking more in the political arena right now, you know, there's so much back and forth on, you know, Trump says every media outlet that says anything bad about him is fake news. And then, but then people turn around and say the same thing about him. Anything that comes out of his mouth, if they don't like him, they assume is some made up. And and it, I just think it it's an invitation for us to get way more curious about um, how historically we've believed that whatever we think is right. And, you know, you bring up a really good point about how that's in every community. That's in the political community. That's in the scientific community. Um, that's in people's households, you know, <laughs> parents and kids. And, and so it, it, it's really fascinating to consider like how would people's willingness to have their own thinking about what they see, but also be willing to suspend that temporarily and be interested in someone else's thinking potentially be an opportunity to advance innovation, creativity, collaboration across industries and dialogue, all of that. So um, again, I just think it's one of those things that we can kind of fall asleep about, you know, and and to your point, if you're used to being in a field that's considered and almost treated as if, oh, their thinking is superior and right. Like if you're in the um, physical sciences realm, then you're dealing with facts. Yeah, well, if you look at the history of science, we have often overturned such facts, you know, only to discover later that we got it kind of wrong. So to always be 
interested in how can we help people in every kind of field see the limits of their own thinking and be open. Yeah, and I think there would be a lot, um, uh, a lot of value in sort of um, teaching. I feel like that's the wrong word. <laughs> in sort of, of um, encouraging this type of discussion and this type of thinking in all fields, especially in fields that have been traditionally more like training oriented. And so the one that keeps coming up to my mind right now recently because of um, some previous bad experience I've had with doctors is um, the medical industry and how doctors typically always think they're right, even though oftentimes they're not. Um, and it's part of their training. They're taught to never, uh, um, you know, uh, present themselves to the patient as being unknowledgeable or as being, you know, not unsure of, uh, <laughs> of um, their skills because that's, uh, it's part of their, their training to project a certain sort of expertise um, with patients. And yeah, and I find, I found myself uh, in instances, a couple of doctor vi doctor's visits, um, getting belittled for doing my own individual research. Um, which I, I know has happened to many others that I know, which um, I understand why there's this perception in the medical community that that causes a lot of confusion. And I'm sure it does in many cases, but just there's something just like very um, like authoritarian about like not allowing an individual to sort of take control of their own um, information around their medical choices outside of just like a short consultation with a doctor where you're just told to do a b and c mm -hmm. um that uh yeah to me is very problematic within the entire field um and this is why that uh, i think it's it's interesting um to look more at how like some parts of medicine have branched off into like more holistic thinking like in functional medicine or general um holistic medicine or even natural medicines um, sort of looking at the, those approaches. I know this is a completely different topic, but I know, but that's why we call it one solution is because yeah. we feel it is the solution in any topic, whether you're talking about how doctors treat patients or how scientists collaborate or don't. I mean, it's absolutely the same conversation, just a different expression of it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, just to go, go off of this a bit further because I, I distinctly remember one doctor's visit where, um, I was sure I was feeling some symptoms and I was sort of saying this to my doctor and my doctor was saying, well, no, you can't be essentially because the tests, the tests say, say you're not. So I found myself doubting myself and I felt extremely frustrated and disempowered as a result of that, because essentially here was my doctor telling me that what I was feeling was not true not existent yeah not which is not solving the problem <laughs> at all um instead of sort of like admitting that you know she just couldn't detect what the, the problem is and maybe suggest that I look for um, alternative like solutions and you know about a year later um I went to a different doctor and um a different test came out um positive for an infection that I probably had had the whole time without knowing it. And so I remember I was, I was quite um, upset about, about this afterward because I had, you know, thought so highly of like the doctor before. And I had specifically asked if I could get a more accurate test that I had read about online. And she said, no, no, this is accurate enough. Like this is, wow. and, and um, the test came out as negative And I, <laughs> um, and then she told me that, you know, like, there's nothing wrong with me essentially. Um, and it just, 
yeah, that sort of experience was uh, <laughs> particularly, um, I think, um, telling to how um, certain ex- experts in their field can get so um, kind of like wrapped up internally in terms of what they think that they know and their expertise that they start becoming closed off to signs around them that maybe like their thinking is is not correct in a particular case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that segues perfectly into my final question for you is, um, Lauren, what do you want to do going into the world uh, once you finished your schooling to help change this? Yeah, so that's something that I am um, constantly reflecting on, and I'm still quite open-ended about exactly what I want to do post-graduation. But I know, broadly speaking, um, I am interested in social and environmental justice. Um, So I'm interested in how we can reduce the inequalities that exist um, on a global scale today. And um, one of the areas that I've worked in um, and that I think um, is incredibly important is the food system um, because it is, you know, international um, in terms of um, just the supply chains and it touches every person's life in such an intimate way. And it's so entangled with other environmental issues such as climate change, water, health, etc. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> it's the stuff that we, we eat, um, that everyone needs to eat to survive. So I think that, um, it's a fascinating area to be working in. I think there are many problems with our, um, global food system today and, um, anything that, that I could do to sort of, um, um reduce some of the like issues around um equality and um health and environmental issues that are um a part of our global food system would be um something that I would be interested in working in but you know what specific part of the world in the public sector or private sector I'm still <laughs> still figuring out yeah yeah, yeah. Got lots of time I love that you're just keeping an open mind about it and know that um one solution has got your back so if there's any way we can ever help you in your journey on doing that in terms of just educating people about the mind and the ability to be more open-minded and change our thinking so that we can make progress on that change faster we would love to help you yeah, thank you so much. And best of luck with um, continuing the fantastic work that you're doing. I think it's in- incredibly inspiring. And um, if only there were a way to measure the sort of um, impact that <laughs> you could uh, you could generate. Um, I mean, it could be it could be massive, but it would be so hard to to measure, um, um, except for kind of through these like case um, studies that you've like these um, specific examples of work that you've done with specific organizations, which are so, so powerful. But um, yeah, if there's anything that I can do to help with that as well, I would, um, I would love to. Yeah. I think it's really important work. Well, we're hoping brilliant people like you at Oxford will come up with the solution for how the heck to measure when people change their understanding of mind, how that affects every global problem of our time, because you're right. It would be amazing if we could measure it. Um, (laughs) We're starting on sort of smaller scales, looking at um, more region specific or issue specific ways of measuring our impact. But ultimately our dream would be to measure the whole thing, 
but how a change in the mind is what what drives global change in every area. But I'll let you work on that in your free time when you're not doing all your other impressive work. (laughs) And thanks so, so much for, for doing this interview with me. Yeah, thanks, Mara. Thanks for taking the time. It was lovely to chat with you again. The audio you just heard was recorded in Anchor. Learn more at anchor.fm.